Well, this morning, as you're turning to Joshua chapter two, I just remind you that we are in an Advent series called The Mothers of Jesus. And it's based on the genealogy that we find in Matthew chapter one, which is where we find this list of all of Jesus's ancestors. And there are five women that are mentioned in that text, and none of them are who we would expect to find there. They are not the classic, highly esteemed matriarchs of the Old Testament, like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. Instead, these women have a very checkered past. And so here's why these genealogies are so important and why we study them. Because back then, it wasn't so much about Your resume wasn't so much about like your high school superlatives or where you went to college, but who you were was really connected to the people that you were from, from your family. And so what you find in the genealogies is sort of like classic name dropping. You find people that are saying, these are my people, these are my, this is my lineage. And because I named their names, they legitimize me, they validate me. And so as you might guess, uh, the cousin Eddies of your life wouldn't make that list. You'd conveniently leave them off. And the people who in your family were of high repute, who were esteemed and uh, untarnished, those were the people that made your list because they made you look much better. Well, what this series is actually showing us is that Jesus is a big fan of Garth Brooks because Frankly, he has friends in low places, really low places. And so one of the things that we're challenged with to consider throughout this series is, are you okay with that? I mean, seriously, are you okay with that? With people like that being in your family? With those kind of people pulling up and sharing a table with you? Are you okay with that? Because in Jesus's resume, One of the mothers that's named is a prostitute named Rahab. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. From Joshua chapter 2, we get Rahab's story. So let's follow along. From Joshua chapter 2, the word should be on your screen. Verses 1 through 15. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the roads that lead to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God 
is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Verse 14, our lives for your lives, the men assured her, if if you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house that she lived in was part of the city wall. And then we have this passage from Hebrews eleven thirty one. It says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that your word would come upon our hearts again and give us a new sense of your glory and give us strength in our faith. We need your spirit this morning to take your words and to press them into our hearts, to bring conviction and healing and wholeness. And only that happens as you point us to the beauty of Jesus himself. So we pray that as this morning, as we listen, Lord, we would see uh, you writing yourself into our story at Christmas. And the hope of the Advent season would give us hope to trust in you and to live our lives with freedom again. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, last week, Andrew, he showed us a picture of Michael Scott who, to illustrate his shock of discovering the story of Judah and Tamar, uh, we saw uh, Michael Scott disgusted and and he was uh, surprised at the lineage. This week, I want to offer you Buddy the Elf, finding out that his father was, in fact, on the naughty list. And uh, it turns out that everyone in Jesus' ancestry is on the naughty list. And Jesus is not surprised. In fact, it's why he came. And so we're going to dive into this story this morning and, and see how Jesus has come. Here's the story. There's these two spies from Israel, and they're starting to do some recon work in the land of Jericho. Because finally, the Israelites, after 40 years in the wilderness, are about to take conquest of the promised land. And now I know probably some of you may have been to the holy city at some point in time. But the way that these cities used to work is it wasn't just like one wall that surrounded the city, but there were actually two walls. And so if you, in your sneak attack, were good enough to take out the first wall, much to your dismay, you would be greeted with, guess what, another wall. But in these walls, what we find out is that people who didn't have very much would build rooms and houses within them and live in the walls. That's Rahab. She's built a place to live inside this city wall. And so the king of Jericho hears that these spies are here, and she sends them to Rahab. And Rahab essentially says, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know who the men were, and they left already, and they went that way. And so after those uh, soldiers leave and go searching, she says to the soldiers, these two two spies, hey, I just sent them that way. You guys should leave and head that way. But... Before you do, promise me that when you come back, you will save my family. You'll spare my mother, my father, my brothers, and my sisters because Rahab knew what was about to happen. So we read this story and it seems like it's about two spies, but the elephant in the room 
for this woman Rahab is that she's a prostitute. She's not just some ordinary upstanding woman that lives in Jericho. She's a prostitute that lives in Jericho. And as this story begins to unfold, there's this portrait that is starting to be painted of her. And what we end up seeing is that a lot like our stories, she's much more complex than what meets the eye. That she's much more of a dynamic character. This story begins to unfold. It's this tapestry of tragedy and triumph of things that have unfolded in her life and what will happen in the future. And that's much like us. Our lives are so much about what's happened to us and what we believe is going to have come down the pipe for us. And so I wanna ask this question this morning. If you were to paint a self-portrait of yourself, what are the things that you would include in your story, in your picture? What would you say, these are definitely the things I would want in a picture of myself? And these are the things that I would never want anyone to see. So the first thing I want to talk about this morning are the self-portraits that we paint. The self-portraits that we paint. Many of you have heard of the famous artist Vincent Van Gogh. There's a picture of him right there. And um, Vincent Van Gogh painted the next picture you're about to see called Cypress at Night. And um, if you can look at that picture, it's hard to see But off to the right, there is a carriage kind of in the background. And if we could zoom in, what you would see in the carriage is a couple. And their faces are basically featureless. But the man in the carriage has red hair and a red beard. And so let me venture a guess. Who do you think that might be in that carriage, in that painting? It's Vincent himself. And what we realize is that he has painted himself into this beautiful picture uh, in the south of France, this carriage ride. So as you look at that, what is that image you think supposed to conjure up inside of you? It's romance in the south of France. Here's this beautiful night. There's this man and this woman cozied up together. They're holding hands. They're riding in a carriage next next to this lovely cypress tree. It's so beautiful. But here's what we come to, to realize about that picture. Van Gogh actually wrote over 800 letters in his lifetime. Most of them were written to his brother, Theo. And one of the things that we learn from these writings is that this scene never happened in his life. He never had some idyllic romance in the south of France. In fact, Van Gogh was horrible at relationships. He was chronically depressed. He was a deeply troubled man, bad at maintaining relationships, and super combative when anybody challenged him about it. That was Vincent. And so he paints this self-portrait, but it's not really a true one. What is it? It's an idealized self-portrait. Now, I want you to think about the tools that we have to do virtually the same thing in our lives today. We've got social media. We've got reels. We've got filters. And oftentimes, we use those things to give us, to create a version, a narrative that present us in a super idealized way where we can make it look like everything in our lives is really, really great and pristine. But you see, there's another side to that coin for Van Gogh. He didn't really take good care of himself. He's, he's what we might call a starving artist. He was one of the first. And as much as he depicted himself in love, he also would imagine himself in the pit of despair, of misery and drudgery. So here's another painting that uh, Van Gogh painted. It's called Prisoners 
in a prison yard exercising. Now that, that doesn't really look like um, cross, CrossFit worthy exercise, uh, you know, but if you are in a prison in the 1800s in France, a walk around the prison yard will do. It'll have to do. So here it is, prisoners in a prison yard exercising. And if you can look at like right in the middle of that picture in the front, there's a picture of a man who is looking directly at the viewer, at the audience. And what we know about art is usually when you have a picture and somebody in the piece is making direct eye contact with the audience, it means that the author has once again painted himself into the picture. So in this picture, he's gaunt, he's harrowed, he's skinny, his beard is shaved, he's unkempt, but it's definitely Vincent. And so the thing about this painting is that just as Vincent didn't have this idyllic, beautiful romance in the south of France, neither did he actually spend any time in prison. He didn't have the romance in France, the the rendezvous, and he never spent time in jail. And so what these pictures tell us is that in both of these paintings, he's painting a partial truth of himself. And we do the same thing. Some of us work really, really hard at convincing the world around us through this presentation of ourselves that everything is just fine. Everything is hunky-dory. We can do it through our clothes and our cars and even our kids. And we're really good at doing it, especially at Christmas. What are some of the ways that you do that? Where you say to the world around you, hey, everything's good. Don't look too closely at my life. But then actually, some of us are really, work really hard at presenting the exact opposite image. The image that you want us to see is your misery. What you want us to hear and see is how miserable you are. And there's almost this way that we take comfort and just sort of relishing in and making sure that you know how hard my life is and how sad I am and how broken I am and how hard life can be. It's almost like having a bruise and you push it so you can feel the pain because you have a comfort in that. You know that feeling? You know what I'm talking about? The question this morning is which one are you? When you you think about the versions of yourself that you project, Which one do you lean towards? Do you lean towards this presentation of yourself where you're fine and nothing is wrong? Or do you lean towards sort of the opposite side of vanity? That you want to present a picture of yourself to the world where you're just always beat down, always depressed, always sad, always lonely. I'm basically just a prisoner in a prison yard in this life, walking around circles, not going anywhere. Or maybe you're like me. And you can go back and forth on that pendulum. And one one day you want to show this and the other day you want to show this. But what I want to say is that both of these are really just strategies for how we live in a broken world. These are just ways that we try to cope. So what the story of Rahab tells us is that the truth of who you are is not so simple. You are way more complex than that that these self-portrait strategies can never satisfy. And the reason is because you're dynamic. You're not static. Your life changes over time. And there's the possibility of transformation. And it's hard to overstate how much Rahab's life was transformed the day that she met these two spies. And so secondly, I want to talk about the portrait of Rahab. 
the portrait of Rahab. Who is this woman? And what do we learn about her? Now, when we think about Rahab from Scripture, most people's immediate recall of her is that she was a prostitute from Jericho. That's the snapshot that we get over and over again. But her life really does change when she meets these two men. And it's not like uh, she's just inspired by their new ideas. No, it's radical, radical change. And that's how the gospel works in us as well. This meeting literally took her from citizenship in one kingdom to citizenship in another king, kingdom. So here's what happened. As for Rah- she, Rahab was in this place after the spies left where she had to continually live by faith. Faith that she would be delivered and her reasons for helping those spies were reasons that ran deep. So I wanna ask, who is Rahab and what did she know? Well, we know from the passage that she lived alone. She lived by herself. She didn't have any husband or children. None of, our, none of them are spoken of. But we do learn from Joshua 2 that she had parents that were still alive and brothers and sisters and siblings that were still alive. And guess where they lived? They all lived in Jericho. Now, if you've ever seen a map of Jericho, it's a pretty small city. Uh, maybe some of you have been to Jericho if you've been to the Holy Lands. What we usually know about Jericho is that this is where Israel, Israel uh, showed up. They marched around the city seven times. They played their instruments. And what happened? We know the story. The walls come down. And so how long would it take, you think, to walk around a city like that seven times? Well, the maps uh, show us that they probably would have been done by lunch, It's a pretty small city. You think about the Carrollton City School Complex, that's probably what we're dealing with with Jericho. So she's known. She lives in this place where everybody lives on top of each other. Her parents live there. Her family lives there. But she lives on the fringes of society. Why is that? Well, the short answer is that almost everyone that she takes into her home contributes to the destruction of another home. And it's not just her profession. It's not just what she does, but it's the way that she lives her whole life. There's this brokenness that has landed on her. And it speaks not only to her condition that she lives this way, but it speaks to the condition of her entire community. That somehow in this small town, there was still plenty of customers to sustain this lifestyle. So what does that say about Jericho, the people there? What does it say about her? Why did she do this? You know, people don't usually take on the life of a prostitute because they want to have more sex. It's because they're trying to survive. It's because life's kicked them to the curb, because they felt defeated and beat up and broken and discarded and rejected. We don't know why exactly she's in this situation, but it does pose the question to us this morning, why do you do the things that you do in your life? What are the vices that you run to? G.K. Chesterton famously said, every man that knocks on the brothel, on the door of a brothel, is looking for God. So why do we pursue the things that we do? We pursue destructive vices because there's a hunger in us, a thirst, a hunger that we deeply want to be satisfied, and yet we can't find it anywhere in this world. To that, C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire which cannot be met by anything in this world, the most logical conclusion is that perhaps I was made for another world. And so when the spies come to Rahab, what they encounter is a deeply unsatisfied, sad woman. 
And that may have actually been one of the reasons that they went to Rahab. Not so that they could sleep with her, but so that they could hide with her. Because when you are a prostitute and you live on the fringe of society, then it means you are a social outcast. And probably if these spies went to her house, nobody was going to really want to see them because nobody ever went to Rahab's house. And if you went to Rahab's house, you wouldn't want to tell anybody that you had been to Rahab's house. And so you didn't see anything and you didn't know anything. And there's a good chance that these spies knew that, that the very reason they started with her is because they might go unseen. And so for the spies, this is pretty handy. It's convenient for what they're up to. But for Rahab, it's just her life. This is her home. This is the way she lives every day. Despised, rejected, nothing desirous about her portrait anymore. She's like one from whom men hid their faces. But we also find that Rahab is this woman who is remarkably tuned in to what's happening in her city. In fact, when the spies show up, she knows exactly who they are. She's been paying attention. She's grown up like everyone else hearing this story of Israel. I gotta think about how old Rahab is. What we learn from the story is that her parents are still alive and that she's an active prostitute. So if we put those two details together, we could probably conclude that Rahab is somewhere under the age of 50 years old. 50 years old. Now, I want you to think about why that matters. For the last 40 years, what do we know about the people of Israel? For the last 40 years, they have been wandering around in a desert just south of Jericho. And Jericho has started to hear the stories. And so from, from birth, from when she's a little kid, she is hearing about this mighty nation who miraculously was rescued out of Egyptian bondage somehow crossed over the Red Sea on dry land and then began to work its way through Sion and Og and took those Amorite cities out. And all of a sudden, for Jericho and all the people growing up in this village, there is this inevitability that is looming large. These hundreds of thousands of people in this mighty nation who seem to have God on their side and a power on their side. And they are coming up there at some point in time and they know it. And it is terrifying. Rahab grew up with these stories. And you see, that's how the imagination works. That's how fear works. They knew there was this ine inevitability that was lurking just below their line of sight. You think about the movie Jaws. Jaws was one of those classic movies in the 70s, and one of the reasons that movie was so effective was that for the first hour, you never saw the shark. The shark wasn't even a part of the movie, and so all of a sudden, here's this, uh, this shark that's looming just below the, the water line. Well, in the same way, Israel has been lurking just beyond the line of sight, and Jericho is terrified. And so Rahab says to these spies, listen, when the people in my town think about you, they tremble in fear because you are an, an inevitability of their demise. And this is what Rahab tells them. She says, you've been lurking just beyond our line of sight and you have filled our imaginations and our minds with terror and we are scared of you. And so thanks to Rahab, they now know this. And so if we keep reading, guess what happens? We know exactly what happens. We learn that Israel does in fact invade. 
And the, uh, Joshua marches to the city and the walls of Jericho come down. God leads these 12 tribes into the land of their inheritance and Rahab and her family are spared just as the spies promised them. Now, is that the end of the story? Rahab asks God, the God of Israel, she prays, she asks him to spare her and her family and in his kindness, he simply rescues her from destruction. That's not the story. That's not what we see happening. In fact, it's about to get crazy. There are three places in the New Testament. Matthew 1 is is one of them. James 2 and Hebrews 11, which we read, also tell us that Rahab was spared because she believed God. She trusted God. And because of the outworking of that faith in her life, she aided those spies and her citizenship changed. And this is where the gospel starts to shine in this story. She went all in on becoming a part of the people of God. She left everything behind, which meant anything to her in her past. And so when the spies left, Rahab had to live with this ongoing faith that one day she would be delivered. She went from being a citizen of Jericho to an alien in her hometown, and only she knew it. But why did she do that? Because her heart was set on a coming kingdom. This is the image of the Christian life. This is the beautiful picture that though we live in this world that is riddled with brokenness and pain and brokenness and destruction, a world that creates lives like the one that Rahab is living, we also believe that somewhere across this desolation and this destruction that there's a coming kingdom. And when that kingdom comes, it will prevail and nothing can stop it. And so we've been given a promise by the one that's ushering in that kingdom that our citizenship lies with that king and his new kingdom. And so we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. And so lastly, I wanna look at what is this promise that's given and how does it give us a new gospel portrait of Christ in us, all right? Joshua 2.17, there is a promise that's made in this that we are meant to hold on to and see in Christ being fulfilled. It starts this way. In Joshua 2.17, we didn't read this, but here's how the story ends. The spies are about to leave, and they say to her, the oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and your mother, your brothers and all your family into the house, If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. So she replied, let it be as you say. And she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And because she does that, her whole life is reframed because of this scarlet cord. I want you to think about this. In the days of Moses, when he was marching around in the desert, they designated one highly esteemed leader for each tribe. In a sense, that leader became a functional uh, prince in the house of Israel. And there were 12 of these princes who would bring offerings on behalf of their tribes. And so in number seven, Moses starts naming these functional princes, these highly esteemed leaders. And one of the men that he names was a man named Nashon. 
Nashon was the prince of Judah. Well, Nashon had a son named Salmon. And when Nashon and Jericho, when Nashon, sorry, and Israel take over Jericho and enter the land, Salmon ends up falling in love with Rahab and they get married. So the prince of Judah, this highly esteemed leader, his son marries Rahab. And in that, Jericho's harlot becomes Judah's princess. Do you see that? That's pretty good news. But that's not the end of the story. Because in Matthew 1, verse 5, we read that Salmon and Rahab have a son named Boaz. And Boaz met a a woman named Ruth. And Ruth, well, we sang this song last week. Uh, Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has several sons, sons. The youngest had a ruddy appearance. And he shepherded sheep. And he ended up being King David. So Rahab isn't just the princess of Judah, she is King David's great, great grandmother. Is this some redemption? Is this crazy? But even better than that, she is directly in the line of Christ. And so listed in Matthew 1's glorious genealogy, remember what we said, your genealogy is your resume. It's where you pointed and said, those are my people. That's who I love, that's who I identify with. It's who I glory in. And in this genealogy, Jesus is glorying in Rahab. Rahab, Matthew is saying that because of Jesus, Rahab has become much, much more than the former harlot of Jericho. That because of the one who saw her and loved her and chose her and died for her, She is now more beautiful and lovely and redeemed than you could possibly imagine. Last week, Andrew said, remember the red thread. Remember the red thread throughout the Old Testament. So when we read this story about the red cord hanging in the window and everybody that's in that house will be spared, but coming destruction and judgment for the rest of the city, anybody outside of that house, what does that remind you of? That's the exact picture of Passover. That's exactly what the people of God did when they were in Egypt. They put red on their door frames and anybody that had it was safe inside and anybody outside of that was doomed to destruction. And here's what Hebrews says. How much more, how much more than the blood of goats and red cords? How much more than will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, who offered himself unblemished to God, will cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? Is that not Rahab's story? Cleansed from these acts? It's our story, so that we may serve the living God. Hebrews 7, such a high priest meets our need one who is holy and blameless and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That's what the red blood and the red cords are pointing to. They're pointing to Jesus, painting himself into our story so that we could be the beautiful and holy and pure ones in our portrait. Isaiah 53, look at how Jesus is painted He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance 
that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And because he painted himself into our story, our self-portraits are made holy and beautiful in his love as well. You know, it's entirely possible that the gospel does not come to Rahab unless she's a prostitute, unless she is willing to sense her desperation and her absolute neediness. The hope of the new king's love for her frees her to be honest about her weaknesses. And so the question this morning is, do you know that freedom in your own life to be able to say the truth about your weaknesses, but also to not be defined by your past? That's what the gospel frees us to do at Christmas I want to close with um, two pictures, uh, two more paintings. One of my close friends, Matt Ballard, is a um, former campus outreach director at Georgia Southern, and now he's a PCA pastor in Tennessee. And he keeps these two paintings on his wall in his office to remind him of some things that we've talked about this morning. The first picture is Van Gogh's. Uh, that's the picture on the left. And it's, a self, it's called self-portrait with, dam, with bandaged ear. Uh, a little bit on the nose when you say self-portrait with bandaged ear. And this is Vincent Van Gogh's most honest and truthful self-portrait. He actually painted it while he was in an asylum at the lowest point in his life. Gone are the carriage rides. Gone are the prison yards. It's just a broken man who can finally paint the truth about himself. Now, here's what you need to know, that when Van Gogh was alive, he actually didn't sell any of his paintings. Uh, He sold one painting the whole time he was alive to a friend of a sister. And so that painting essentially would not have been worth what the canvas was painted on. That's all it would have been worth. But now, what is that painting worth? Well, probably nobody in this room could afford that painting. And so my friend Matt likes to say, We are the wounded faces on that canvas that no one can afford because it's become too precious to put a price on. And so this is a reminder for Matt. This is the kind of pastor that I wanna be. It's a reminder for me as well as a pastor. I want to be able to show and be honest about the woundedness in my life. I don't wanna be a pastor who who pretends to have all the answers. I wanna be willing to show you my brokenness Because in my brokenness, it points to the beauty of Christ. The other painting is uh, the prodigal, the return of the prodigal by Rembrandt. The first painting showed him that he could be free to show his woundedness. But the second painting shows that he's not to be defined by it. Henry Nouwen wrote about um, the prodigal son and this painting. This is what he said about our brokenness. Our brokenness has no other beauty than the beauty that comes from the compassion that surrounds it. What that means is that the prodigal son, when he returns home to the father, doesn't come with any any beauty. His beauty is not in his brokenness, how ragged and beat down and miserable he is. But the beauty is that in that condition, the father envelops him in love, surrounds him with compassion, showers him with grace. And that's where our beauty shines in our brokenness and well. 
There is ugliness in every single one of us. You know what? It's okay to show that brokenness to other people because in that is an opportunity to show the compassionate love, the grace of our Father surrounding us and making us beautiful, painting himself into our story. Rahab was beautiful to Salmon, but even at our ugliest, we're more beautiful to God. You know, he sees you as you are, and you are of incalculable worth to him. Would that free you to show your life to the world around you as you truly are, as you know the gospel this Christmas? What does your life show to the world? I want to encourage you to bring to the Lord the lies that you tell about yourself. Bring to the Lord also the truths that you withhold from yourself and ask him to set you free. First to believe the truth about the gospel and then to tell it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that in Jesus you have written yourself into the story of, none of, of those who um, do not deserve it, the least and the lost, those who are broken and wounded by our sin. And so what we want to remember at Christmas is um, not this story where we try to project something that's not true of us, where we look like we have all of our lives together and we get caught up in the hustle and bustle of Christmas and we're doing everything in our power and out spending more than we have to kind of keep this false image propped up. Help us not to do that because of Christ. And help us also not to just sort of loathe our loneliness and our despair and to project this misery because we're not defined by our brokenness. We're defined by your love for us. Help us to see that, to know it, and to talk about it. Thank you that you have made us a holy people because you are a holy God. And we pray in your name. Amen.